Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I'm going to share a little bit of news about what's going on here on my homestead, the so-called murder hornets that have been all throughout the news and also I am starting my in-depth book review of The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley. So let's get cracking on this today. Um, If you've been following my Instagram, and I know I mentioned in my last episode that my whippet chappy cut his face somehow, and we had to get him taken in for stitches. We had to wear his uh, comfy cone, which is a padded cone that makes it more comfortable for them to sleep and rest for the full two weeks, as it turns out. Um, We actually didn't end up going to the vet to have the stitches removed, though, because I'm not sure if it was the kind of stitches used or if they weren't tied very tight because of the area that they were trying to save. Um, But the stitches just slowly started coming undone as his healing progressed. And finally, we would just pull them out when they completely came loose. And then the last stitch was through the biggest scab and the scab fell off and the stitch came with it. So we saved an additional vet trip, which is great because I was, you know, I'm trying to limit contact with people and keep everyone safe. So now he is free to run and hunt and play and sleep under the duvet. And it was pretty funny actually because um, we took the cone off, we took his harness off and he ran outside the first thing that he did was retrieve a toy that he had abandoned out there, then eat poo, which he got yelled at for. And then he then he decided it was time to run and play. And he played a little bit with his sister and he was romping and sniffing everything and barking at squirrels and was just so happy. And then that night we were able to let him under the duvet, which we hadn't allowed when he had the cone on because I was terrified that he'd like, get stuck or I don't know suffocate I was just worried about it and he was so happy and so he's been sleeping under the duvet back to normal pressed up against my leg and I have to admit that I am almost as relieved as he probably is. In terms of what's been going on here on the homestead not a lot the weather's been miserable we had another cold front come through but I have to assume that the soil temperature is rising just because there's a lot of things that are in bloom. I shared some pictures on my Instagram, you know, my lilac bush is budding. Um, The pear trees have been in bloom for a little bit. We've had daffodils come up, various other like flowering bulbs. The trees are finally starting to put new growth out. So I have to have faith that we're going to get there eventually but I haven't been able to do very much. There's a lot of stuff that I'm waiting, that I have to wait on warmer night temperatures before I can do because otherwise, you know, seeds aren't going to survive or various treatments aren't going to work properly. So it's frustrating and I've had some tough days, but you just have to work with what you have. Um, I did find out as well, which is a little frustrating that, um, FedEx is no longer offering insured overnight priority delivery because the issue with the pandemic and everything has been causing shipping delays and this isn't an issue if you're shipping um, non-perishables or non-living beings but as someone who ships my reptiles all across the US this is an issue and although some people are still shipping reptiles at this time I'm not going to. Um, I have spoken to some potential customers already about this issue and I'm preparing to make a public statement on my business blog uh, the one for my pink tongue skinks but basically I'm not risking the lives of my reptiles until um, on shipping without any kind of insurance or uh, suitable tracking so the issue is that um, you can pay for priority overnight and it could take as many as three days to get there that's unacceptable And I can't offer live arrival guarantee. I can't get insurance. I'm just allowing these living, breathing animals to go and hope for the best. That's that just isn't going to fly for me. So fingers crossed as we move 
you know, into June and then later into July that um, FedEx is able to return to normal so I can get back to shipping because otherwise I'm going to have a lot of babies and have no way to get them to their new owners. So we're going to have to watch the situation and see what happens. But for now, babies are doing well. They're eating. They are pooping. We're going into um, the constant cleaning cycle. The little babies poop a lot they're just like little poop machines and so I'm in there you know usually every other day cleaning them out you know making sure they're not living in filth so it's going to get very very busy I am still waiting on my remaining pregnant skink to give birth and she just looks miserable so fingers crossed that's going to happen soon now because of the weather I don't have a lot of hive news to share um, I was able to pop in on Saturday, May 2nd. It was a warm day, about 60 to 67 degrees in the afternoon, but with a moderate to at sometimes quite strong wind. It was a mix of sunny and overcast, and I went out about between three and four o'clock. Um, in hive number one, which is my Ohio queen, Keredwin, I found my queen, I found eggs, I found brood, that's all good. The queen is in the middle box, so she's starting to move upwards. There's a decrease of brood in the lower box now. So I ended up actually reversing the boxes, but making sure that the brood frames stayed together. They're still not pulling a lot of wax in the top box I've given them, but that's to be expected. Um, it's still been too cold for sugar syrup. So they are, you know, bringing in what they can as well in terms of nectar and any kind of fondant that I put out for them, but I don't expect to see a lot of wax building until we finally start coming into either warm enough weather that I can put sugar syrup out and or a nectar flow. Um, I did feel like the brood pattern was a little spotty suddenly and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, I definitely was feeling my inexperience here. I went back to my books, I went back to my notes from last year, and the only thing I can think is that it could be a sign of hygienic behaviour of them pulling out um, either mite-infested brood or like disease-ridden brood, I'm not sure, but there were no signs of brood disease that I could see. Uh, everyone was bringing in pollen and nectar, and there was a lot of like strong population build and the queen was laying her eggs well so um I am a little concerned but I think it's just something that I need to keep an eye on and learn from experience this is my biggest hive so I'm always looking for signs of swarming of which there were none they are still making drones this is a good sign they obviously feel like they have the resources and I put the wrap back on because we've had really cold nights Hive number two, which is Queen Marker, my surviving southern queen. I found the queen, I found eggs, and I found brood. The queen had moved into the upper box. Um, this hive had absolutely stunning frames of brood, just packed <coughs> with brood. Oh, excuse me for one second. Sorry about that. That was my greyhound, Kaylee, deciding that it was playtime. I told her no, <laughs> it's not playtime. Mummy needs to record. Um, where was I? Okay, yeah, beautiful frame full of brood. I mean, just absolutely stunning. Uh, they're also uh, laying some um, drones, which is good. This hive has a candy board still on, the wrap is still on, and I'm considering reversing boxes at the next inspection. Hive number three, this is my Saskatraz queen. This is the package installation, which was installed very recently. I found the queen, I found the eggs, I found brood. Brood buildup is good. It's not great, but it's still very early days for this colony. The population looks good. I've seen a lot of foraging activity, big fat pollen pants. This queen is beautiful and fat. She's got that big badonkadonk and um, she's in the lower box still. So she has room to move up. They also have the candy box, uh, candy board on because they could use the extra food and I just want to make sure they have everything they need and I have the wrap on as well. So that's all I have in terms of hive news because I just haven't had a chance to get back out there. Apparently we have warmer weather coming over the next couple of days but there's also going to be rain as well. So I'm hoping actually tomorrow will be a good day to get out there, fingers crossed, because I'm itching to see what they've been up to since my last check. So moving on, 
I wanted to address, and I know kind of everyone is, the Hive Jive just covered this. Um, I think the Buzz About Bees, which is another great podcast, just covered this, but I'm gonna as well. I wanna talk about this murder hornet that the press has been running wild with and people have been sending me articles and telling me like, you know, oh no, your bees are in danger and all this kind of stuff. Well, no. Firstly, I'd like to say that I used a article from the National Geographic website for a lot of this information, um, as well as looking at other um, news releases, and I kind of condensed it as best as I could for the following information. And the first thing I want to say is that let's stop calling it the murder hornet. No one called it that until the press picked up this story. It's always been known as the Asian giant hornet. Um, researchers who've been already studying this um, wasp species had been calling it Asian giant hornet. The whole murder hornet phrase is picked up entirely by the media in order to get you to read their articles or buy their newspapers. It's just sensationalism. So if you could all do me a great favor, please use the term Asian giant hornet. And if people say to you like murder hornet, murder hornet, you can just be like, well, it's the Asian giant hornet actually. And it's not really that big of a threat for us at this time. And it really isn't. So the first thing to keep in mind is that two individual hornets, not two nests of hornets, two individual hornets were found last year, 2019, in one area of Washington state. And they were immediately, after identification was confirmed, killed. Now, I don't want to be cocky about the issue of an invasive species because we've seen, like with varroa mites, how damaging invasive species can be. And we see it all the time in all kinds of insects, you know, like wood borers and trees. I'm sure there's many I'm not thinking of right now. But basically, yes, we need to take any kind of potential invasive species seriously. But right now, what we've been able to confirm is there were two individual hornets that were found in 2019 in one particular area of Washington state. And the good news is that people are already rallying, you know, researchers, entomologists, they're already working to keep an eye out for further cases of this particular hornet. And so what's being done is that there are teams working in the area where these original hornets were found setting out traps which are looking for queens and workers and if they can trap the hornets they can eventually pinpoint nest locations which will allow them to eradicate them and they're also experimenting with things like heat sensitive imaging to find the nest as the hornets will nest underground and that will generate heat from their activity. And everything I read basically indicated that the next few years are critical in terms of getting ahead of this. So the fact that there's already teams in place, there are already people looking, setting traps, planning ahead for what to do if they find further individuals of this species means that we are actually doing a pretty good job so far. So I don't want to say it's never going to be an issue, but I do want to say that people who study these animals and study invasive insects are on the case. And since that 2019 finding in Washington, there haven't been any further Asian giant hornets found in the US. Now, also in 2019, there were some... um, of this species found in Nanaimo, Canada, but they did genetic testing and they were able to basically show that the hornets that came into the US are completely different from those that were found in Canada genetically. So basically what this means is that we did not get those hornets through Canada, which is a good sign. They're not moving through Canada. And Canada also has had no further incidences of this Asian giant hornet since that original 2019 finding, and those were also killed. So why is the press going nuts with this whole murder hornet thing? Well, some of it is just look at look at it if you've read any of the newspapers or websites or whatever I mean it's a terrifying looking 
wasp. It's huge. It has a giant bulky head. It has a very long stinger, much longer than a number of other hornet species, and it can repeatedly sting people. And yes, it has killed people. Um, In its native areas of Asia, it actually kills a certain number of people every year. And to give an idea, one statistic I found was that in Japan, 30 to 50 people per year die from hornet stings. And as far as I could tell, this is all kinds of hornets, not just exclusively the Asian giant hornet. And studies also indicate that 50 or less stings can be fatal. So basically anything above 50 is almost always going to be fatal and anything under 50 can be fatal. Although what's interesting is it's actually usually kidney damage that kills the victims of the stings from the venom, not um, anaphylaxis. But to put these numbers in perspective for you, the CDC reported that from 2000 to 2017, there were 1,109 deaths from hornet, wasps and or bee stings in the US, which is an average of 62 such deaths a year. An interesting side note, 80% of all fatalities were in men. Hmm, not sure why. Uh, Maybe men go out and deal with the nests more? Who knows? But what this basically means then is that Although 62 deaths per year on average in the US from all stinging insects, so hornets, wasps, and bee stings, is relatively in line with that 30 to 50 people just from hornet stings. So obviously hornet stings are an issue, but generally speaking, those numbers are pretty much in line. So no, I'm not saying that we should be reckless or careless, but I don't think this idea that this is some kind of devastating murder hornet that kills everything in its path is accurate. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, I would also say, yes, if it does get into the US, it would be an issue for our honeybees. Basically how this species works is, they, let's say they find your bee colony and they hit it hard and because of their size they can basically just chew through all the guard bees and foragers until they've killed off the majority of the population then what they do is they move into the hive for a week or more and eat their way through all the larva Um, every stage of larva they will eat they'll also even eat some of the young nurse breeds um nurse breeds (laughs) nurse bees um they're basically carnivorous and it's really good protein for them. And so they will nom, 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 nom their way through and absolutely destroy your hive. Now, what I saw was that they can wipe out the adult bees within about 90 minutes. And then you have that week of them staying in there in the hive to eat the brood. So yes, this could be a really big problem for us if they did become invasive and pervasive throughout the US but we're not there yet we're not even close to that yet we've only found two individual hornets in Washington state and no more since and also I've seen a lot of people saying oh that timeline is wrong my neighbor slash cousins uncles baby daddy's son had a nest of these last year so as always everyone's wrong and I'm right and we have a bigger problem than we think. And that's unlikely to be the case. Probably what's happening is that people are mistaking the Asian giant hornet for the European hornet, which is Vespa crabro, which is a common hornet found in the US. It does look relatively similar, but it's much less aggressive and less dangerous. So no, it's not fun to find a nest of them. But if you do find a nest of some kind of hornet, it is probably the European hornet. And the chances of it being the Asian giant hornet are, I'm going to say minimal to none based on the fact that we haven't even demonstrated that there are nests here yet, period. So there's my little rant. Um, I'm going to try and find a picture of the... um, Asian giant hornet next to the European hornet to give you an idea of differences so that you can see for yourself and I'll put that on my website. All right so the main topic of today's podcast is my third book review 
Um, as promised, I finally got started on the Thomas D. Seeley book, which is called The Lives of Bees, The Untold Story of the Honeybee in the Wild. And I'm quite excited to start this book. Um, it's had rave reviews and it covers a lot of really interesting things that I think a lot of beekeepers and also anyone who's just interested in bees will find fascinating. So who is Thomas Seeley? The author of this book, Thomas Seeley, is the Horace White Professor in Biology at Cornell University. He's the author of Following the Wild Bees, Honeybee Democracy and Honeybee Ecology, as well as The Wisdom of the Hive. He lives in Ithaca, New York. That's from the about the author section in the book. Now I went out and I wanted to see what Dr. Seeley's education is. So he has an AB summer cum laude in chemistry from Dartmouth College, which was um, achieved in 1974, a PhD in biology from Harvard University, 1978. And what I found very interesting is that one of his advisors at Harvard was the incredible author, naturalist and biologist E.O. Wilson. Now, a lot of you have probably read something from him, particularly if you're interested in nature. He has a lot of wonderful books. Um, E.O. Wilson is also considered the world expert on ants and their behavior. And he's often called the father of sociobiology and the father of biodiversity. So I had a huge fangirl moment when I was reading that because if there's one thing that I love, it's biologists and E.O. Wilson. <laughs> so I just thought that was incredible. Now, in terms of the actual book, you can buy it in a number of different forms. It's available as an audiobook, a hardcover, which is what I have, and also a Kindle or ebook. The hardcover is, it's really well made. It's a sturdy book. The text is very clear. The pictures are lovely and the diagrams are easy to read. The cover design is very appealing with little honeybees all over it and clear text. And the book will run you between 20 and 29.95, depending on the vendor. The Kindle is currently available on Amazon for 19.47. So I think it's worth paying the little bit extra and getting the hardback. And then the audiobook is available on Amazon right now for 10.99 or free if you have an Audible account. So those are your options. And what I'm gonna do for this book is I'm gonna break it into chapters and I'll be covering, you know, maybe two chapters for every podcast because there's a lot of information in it and I'm kind of trying to break it down to be more accessible. So today I'll be covering, you know, the preface as well as chapters one and two. And there's actually quite a lot to cover. It, it sort of surprised me how long my notes got. So in the preface, Seeley talks a little bit about his lifelong interest in honeybees. And he notes that the focus throughout history has always been on their management in various man-made structures. And as a result, very little is actually known about their natural living conditions and their natural preferences for nesting sites in the wild. He shares a story of seeing a swarm move into an old tree when he was 11 years old and how that moment later came to him as an adult when he was pondering the nest sites of wild honeybee colonies. In fact, when he was choosing his thesis topic for his PhD, Seeley chose the honeybee and what attracted them to various nesting sites. In his own words, what was it about the dark cavity in the black walnut, walnut tree near my parents' house that attracted bees to make it their dwelling place? Ugh, sorry, I can't talk today. So we can see that he has always been drawn to honeybees and when it comes to taking his academic career to the next level he again returns to the honeybee and he finds himself asking why do they choose the nest sites that they do so then we have chapter one the introduction and each chapter opens with a quote which i'm going to share because i think they're very well chosen and uh, some of them are quite witty so the opening quote for chapter one is by Wendell Berry in his book, Preserving Wildness, 1987. We have never known what we were doing because we have never known what we were undoing. We cannot know what we are doing until we know what nature would be doing if we were doing nothing. 
And Celie goes on to say um, what this book is really all about. And he sums it up so well that I'm just going to quote him directly here. This book is about how colonies of the honeybee, Apis mellifera, live in the wild. Its purpose is to provide a synthesis of what is known about how honeybee colonies function when they are not being managed by beekeepers for human purposes and instead are living on their own and in ways that favour their survival, their reproduction and thus their success in contributing to the next generation of colonies. So Seeley chooses colonies for this study and The area that they're located is in wild deciduous forests of the northeastern US. So why is this important to know? Why is it important to know how wild honeybee colonies function? Well, honeybees are used as model systems for biological studies, including animal cognition, behavioural genetics and social behaviour. It improves our personal beekeeping. To quote Seeley, using nature as a guide for developing sustainable methods of agriculture, which is surely what we're all looking to do. And then also Seeley found that the colony mortality rates of 40% in North America provided a lot of impetus for him to study this little known area of honeybee research. Next, Seeley discusses the genetic history of honeybees living in the northeastern US today. So until mid so the mid-1800s, all honeybees in the US were descendants of those bees brought from Europe in the early 1600s. These consisted primarily of Apis mellifera mellifera linnaeus, which is the dark European honeybee, and it was actually the first subspecies to be described taxonomically 360 years ago. So Apis mellifera mellifera linnaeus lived throughout northern Europe and was adapted to forested regions. It was brought to North America by English and Swedish immigrants in the 1600s. Those colonies then swarmed and they quickly became part of the local fauna propagating in the wild. Current day honeybees are no longer genetically pure descendants of this original European subspecies in part because in 1859, other subspecies of Apis mellifera were brought to the US. Three of the most important of these subspecies came from Southern and Central Europe. And these were A.M. Ligustica, which is the Italian honeybee, A.M. Carnica, the Carniolan honeybee, which is from Slovenia, A.M. Caucasia, which is the Caucasian honeybee, and it comes from the Caucasus mountain regions. Then in 1987, A.M. Scutellata, the African honeybee, entered the U.S. via Florida and then later by crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, which is what led to Africanized colonies of honeybees within the southern U.S. states. So the question now is, what is the mix of subspecies represented genetically in the wild honeybee colonies of this particular study? And to answer this question, Seeley collected two sample sets, each consisting of 32 sets of bees from 32 wild colonies. One set was collected in 1977 and preserved, and then the other was collected in 2011. Both groups primarily descended from A.M. Ligustica, the Italian honeybee, and A.M. Carnica, the Carniolan honeybee but they also had genes remaining from the dark European honeybee of the 1600s and the Caucasian honeybee of the 1800s. Whereas the bees in the modern sample, 2011, they had an additional set of genes, less than 1%, from two African species, the A.M. scutellata that we're more familiar with and A.M. yemenitica, which I hope I pronounced correctly. And these Africanized genes likely came from southern state queen rearers where Africanized genetics are a lot more common. So those states would be places like Florida, Georgia, Alabama and Texas. What does this genetic analysis tell us? 
Well, the arrival of African bees in the southern southern states have actually had a limited effect on the genetics of the wild colonies in Ithaca, because which is where this study is being performed. Because remember, I said it was less than 1%. So that's pretty good that they haven't fully integrate, uh, yeah, integrated into this area. But it also tells us that the genes of the wild colonies in this area of Ithaca, New York, are predominantly from honeybees native to southern Europe, even though subspecies from northern Europe reached the US 100 years earlier. And this could be due to the popularity of the southern European subspecies, which are known for being docile and good honey producers. I mean, that's part of why people today still like Italian and Carniolan honeybees. And knowing that these genes are predominantly from honeybees native to southern Europe, we can look at southern Europe's weather which has very mild winters, which is very different to Ithaca, New York, which has long cold winters. And yet these bees are still thriving. So likely what's happened is that over the past 400 years, these Southern European subspecies have adapted through natural selection for this more severe winter period. And then after this whole discussion chapter one closes with a brief summary of what to expect in the rest of the book going chapter by chapter which I'm not going to cover because he kind of does this at the end of every chapter and it's going to get a bit repetitive so let's move to chapter two bees in the forest still and he opens this chapter with the quote reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated by Mark Twain in the New York Journal 1897 so now Celie goes into more detail about the area of study. So we've talked about in chapter one, the bees used for this study, what their genetic origins are, what their current genetics are, and what this can tell us about their evolution over time in the past 400 years. But now we're looking at the area in which those colonies live. And this is the Arnott Forest, which is a wonderful area actually owned by Cornell University. Its size is 17 square kilometers or 6.6 square miles and it's southwest of Ithaca, New York in the Finger Lakes region. The climate is similar to northern Europe with short, hot and humid summers usually below 90 degrees Fahrenheit and long cold snowy winters temps often falling below zero degrees Fahrenheit and with an annual snowfall of over five feet. He also goes into some detail about the ecological history of the area, which I'm just going to sum up by saying that it was turned agricultural by European settlers, but it eventually was taken back over by hardwood tree species until it became a full forest once again. Trees in this area include chestnuts, maple and ash, many of which are over 140 years old. There are many different kinds of plants and forage here that provide nectar and pollen sources for honeybees. Other trees in the area include things like cherry, basswood, tulip, chestnut and cucumber magnolia. There are shrubs which include common alder, pussy willow, staghorn sumac, spicebush, serviceberry, hawthorns and northern shrub honeysuckle. Then there's all kinds of herbaceous plants including brambles, goldenrod and aster. As well as areas such as nearby farms, gardens, roadways and what he refers to as waste areas down in the valley, which include things like apple orchards, fields of buckwheat, hay fields seeded with white and sweet clover and alfalfa, boggy areas with cattails, jewelweed, purple loosestrife, and then people's gardens, which contain, you know, all kinds of things, including crocuses, milkweeds, dandelion, chicory, Japanese knotweed, and many different herbs, including the much-loved-by-bees borage, catnip, and mint. So basically, this is a big forested area, but it's up against areas of farms, gardens, roadways, orchards, all kinds of different areas, and as a result, there is a huge variety of forage available for the honeybees that were studied for this book. So 
what Seeley does now is he talks a little bit about other studies that have been done on wild honeybee colonies. And there's not a huge amount, but there are some that he deemed key or thorough enough to discuss in the book. And I'm going to break them down individually. So I'm going to start with what I'm calling the 1978 study. And this was performed by Seeley and his friend and collaborator Kirk Vischer in the Arnott Forest. So he, this is one of the first times he did a honeybee study in this forest. And they focused on the south and west sectors of the forest. And their plan was to basically find bee nests. And they found nine bee trees. So trees with honeybee nests in them. And to quote Seeley, the nine colonies that had been found were at most about one half of all colonies residing in this forest. Hence, there were 18 or more colonies living in this 17 square kilometer, 6.6 square mile forest. And Seeley breaks things down like this frequently through the book. So you're going to hear me talking a lot about how many nests were found and then what that tells us about how many colonies there are per square kilometer or per square mile. This is a key statistic for Seeley's study. So basically what this meant was that in 1978 in the Arno Forest, there was roughly one colony per square kilometer or 2.5 colonies per square mile. Now the method used to find the nest sites in this 1978 study was a method called bee lining. And this is a method that was described in the 1949 book, The Bee Hunter by George H. Edgell. And I'm gonna try and sum it up as briefly as I can because it's a relatively involved and laborious process. But the basic idea is that you go out to a clearing with flowers and forage that are attractive to honeybees. And you start capturing foraging bees in what is called a bee box, which is basically a small box with two chambers within it. Once you have about two bees in one of those, um, I'm sorry, once you have about six bees in one of those chambers, in the second chamber, you slide in a piece of old comb or beeswax filled with sugar syrup, and then open the little door between the two chambers so that the bees can find it. Then you wait until the bees start consuming the syrup and then release them. As you let them fly away, you note the direction in which they fly off. Then you have to dig deep for patience and wait for the bees to return. There will eventually, if all things are going as planned, be a time when there is a steady stream of bees moving back and forth between your bee box with this readily available food source and their nest site. And this is their bee line, the most direct flight between food source and home. As Seeley says, you determine the direction to their home by measuring their vanishing bearings with a magnetic compass. And you estimate the distance to their home by measuring the round trip times of half a dozen bees that you have labeled with paint marks. So this is pretty involved. Once you have an idea of where this beeline is going, you start moving along it. So you move along the beeline approximately 300 to 600 feet, which is about 100 to 200 meters. Release some of the trap bees. Note the direction in which they fly to make sure you're going the right way. Note how long it takes them to get back between feedings, which gives you an idea of if you are getting closer or not. And then you just keep repeating this process. And the idea is that eventually, if all is going well, you'll be able to follow the beeline to the clearing of trees where then bee tree is located. And then it's just a case of narrowing down which exact tree they are nesting in. This is a really long process requiring a huge amount of patience. And they actually... Thomas Seeley mentions in the book that each move along the beeline can take more than an hour. I just, I can't even imagine. I, I just don't have the patience for that. It's incredible. But I mention that here, not just because it's interesting, but because the method in which different researchers use to find nests is important. And this is a method that Thomas Seeley prefers. 
So next in the chapter, Thomas Seeley talks about other colonies um, in other parts of the world and studies that have been done on them. So we just talked about his um, Seeley's own uh, 1978 study. And there was a study performed in 1990, which was also done in New York, uh, but in a small port city of Oswego, which is in northern New York state. And the purpose of this study was actually looking for Africanized bees and Varroa mites. The area they chose was... um, 1.6 kilometers or about one mile from the port and the port was chosen because Africanized bees in particular originally came to the U.S. um, on cargo ships and and, uh, so it wouldn't be out of possibility to find um, Africanized honeybee colonies around a port area. Now, in this 1990 study, 11 wild colonies were found and there was one managed colony, so a hive that was owned and managed by a beekeeper. And so based on this, they could say that there were 2.7 colonies per square kilometers or seven colonies per square mile. And at the time, there was no indication of Africanized bees or Varroa found. The next study mentioned is a Texas A&M University study. This was done from 1991 to 2001. That's a really long period of time. The location chosen, excuse me, it's actually, um, I'm recording this in two parts and this is quite early in the morning. I have to record when my husband um, runs off to the lab to check on the animals there and um, I didn't expect him to leave so early this morning so I'm a little tired and my tea hasn't kicked in yet so please bear with me. Okay so Texas A&M University study from 1991 to 2001 the location was the Welder Wildlife Refuge which is a 31.2 square kilometer or 12.2 square mile nature preserve in southern Texas. The purpose of the study was to track the Africanization of wild honeybee colonies within the refuge. So several times a year, for 11 years total, biologists searched an area of 6.25 square kilometers or 2.4 square miles within the refuge, and they collected samples of worker bees from each colony that was discovered. An interesting note was that 85% of colonies were found in cavities of oak trees specifically. And then what they did is they had the mitochondrial DNA of all the bees collected and they analyzed it to determine maternal ancestry. So mitochondrial DNA is passed almost exclusively from mother to offspring, which is why it was chosen so that they could track maternal ancestry. And what they found was in 1991 to 1993, the queen bees were mainly descendants of several European subspecies, 68% A.M. ligustica and A.M. carnica, which is southern European bees, 26% A.M. mellifera, which is northern Europe, and 6% A.M. lamarki, which is actually northern Africa. From 1993 onwards, however, the queens became primary descendants of South African subspecies, the A.M. scutellata, which basically means that from 1993 onwards, the colonies became Africanized. Now, the reason this colony, um, the reason this study on these colonies is important for Seeley's work is that what this shows is that when the population was primarily European in origin, the wild colonies were actually very numerous, approximately nine to 10 colonies per square kilometer, and that's 24 per square mile. So that's quite different to what's been seen in previous studies. Then Seeley looks to Europe. And one of the studies mentioned is a study that was conducted in Poland and Apis mellifera, the European honeybee is native to this area. The team is from Kashmir's Wilki University 
and they studied wild colonies and areas of the lowlands of northern Poland, which is about 68% agricultural in area and 27% forested. Now, this study focused exclusively on rural avenues and old trees alongside country roads. They ended up examining 15,115 large trees in 201 avenues and searched along 142 kilometres or 88 miles. In this area, they found 45 colonies, which gives a density of 0.32 colonies per kilometre or 0.51 per mile. And this gives an estimate of overall density of wild colonies of 0.1 colonies per square kilometer or 0.26 per square mile so not a huge amount now this is an underestimate as they chose not to search the forested areas they were just focusing on the rural avenues and it's also possible that they overlooked colonies that had very high nest entrances But this study is still valuable because it demonstrates that rural avenues are serving as a refuge for wild colonies. And just as a side note, it's important when looking at this data to understand that beekeepers in this area also maintain colonies. And they worked that out to be approximately 4.4 managed colonies per square kilometre or 11.4 colonies per square mile. Next, we have the German study, which was performed by the University of Hull researchers. And they chose three widely spaced sites um, that were spread from north to south within Germany. Two of those sites were within national parks. Um, It was the Muritz National Park and the Haas National Park. And one site was a rural area in Bavaria. This team took an indirect approach based on genetic analysis to estimate the number of wild colonies. So what they did is they took 10 virgin queens and they released them to conduct mating flights at each study area. They then analysed the genes of the queen's offspring. And this allowed them to determine how many colonies produced drones that subsequently mated with the queens. And if you consider that each queen bee mates with approximately 10 to 15 drones, then the worker offspring of 10 queens equals approximately 100 to 150 drones to sample from. And so based on this analysis, it gave them um, estimates of about 24 to 32 colonies producing drones in the three study areas. And um, this next section I've entitled Maths Time. Oh no. So this math was not performed by me. This is from the book directly. Um, But it is important to just cover it real quick so that we understand what this study determined. So basically, assuming that queens and drones fly 900 metres or 0.56 miles to mating areas, then the area in which these colonies were dispersed equals a circle with a radius of 1.8 kilometres or 1.1 miles and an area of 10.2 square kilometres or 3.9 square miles. So this gives an estimated average density of colonies for the three locations as 2.4 to 3.2 colonies per square kilometre or 6.2 to 8.2 colonies per square mile. And an important note for this study is that um, there might have been managed colonies within the study areas. So that needs to be considered when looking at the results. There was a second German study that Celie included. This was done by the University of Würzburg team. And it was a survey of wild colonies in largely undisturbed European beech forests in central and southwestern Germany. The study areas chosen were um, Heinrich Forest, which is 100 square kilometres or 62 square miles in size. And then several cluster areas in the uh, Biosphere Reserve in Swabian Alp mountain range. And this is a whopping 850 square kilometres or 328 square mile area. 
there are absolutely no managed hives allowed in any of these locations. So we don't have to worry about those when looking at the statistical results. And the methods that these researchers used was beelining, which is Seeley's preferred method, and also inspecting known nesting cavities of the black woodpecker, which is the largest woodpecker in northern Europe, because those areas are known for being suitable nesting sites for honeybees. So at the Hainrich Forest, they found nine wild colonies, which equals 0.13 colonies per square mile, uh, I beg your pardon, per square kilometre, or 0.34 per square mile. In the Swabian Alb biosphere, they found seven wild colonies, which equals 0.11 colonies per square kilometres, or 0.28 per square miles. So again, this is relatively low numbers. In Australia, where the European honeybee was introduced in 1822, a University of Sydney team looked to national parks to study wild colonies. And they chose national parks because they are largely undisturbed habitats and there is absolutely no managed bee colonies allowed in these areas. All three parks that were chosen are located in southeastern Australia and they are the Barrington Tops National Park, the Wedden Mountains National Park, and the Whipperfeld National Park. And for their method, they used drone sampling again, but this time they collected drones at congregation areas. So whereas the pre- one of the studies mentioned previously, they used drone sampling by analysing the offspring of queens, this group of scientists is directly collecting drones at congregation areas and then looking at their genetics. They chose two locations at each site and from the genetics of drones captured they got colony estimates as 0.4 to 1.5 colonies per square kilometers or 1 to 3.9 per square miles. Now the most recent study conducted Um, was in 2017 and this was conducted by Robin Radcliffe also of Cornell University. The area chosen was a 5.5 square kilometer or 1.9 square mile area of the Shindagin Hollow State Forest in New York State. This is about it's east of Arno Forest and the method used was beelining and five colonies were located, which gives an estimate of one colony per square kilometre or 2.5 per square mile. And what's really interesting about this 2017 study is that the results are almost identical to what Seeley got from his 1978 study, as well as what he saw in 2002 and then later in 2011, which are going to be discussed later in the book. So what does this all mean? I just threw a huge amount of numbers at you. I hope you didn't (laughs) lose patience. But why is this important? Why was Seeley looking at this? And part of the reason he's looking at this is that he can see, based on these other studies, that the density of wild colonies varies greatly depending on the area. But the general estimate is in the range of one to three colonies per square kilometres or 2.6 to 7.8 colonies per square miles. And overall, the density of wild colonies is low. So this tells us that wild honeybee nests are widely spaced apart. And in Arno Forest specifically, where Seeley is doing his research, the average distance between colonies is 0.87 kilometres or 0.54 miles. So half a mile between each colony on average. And this is very important because what this tells us is that wild colonies are much, much farther apart than our managed colonies that we keep in our apiaries. And this is gonna become very important later on in the book. So the next big question is, have these wild colonies been decimated by Varroa? And honestly, this is what made me want to read this book. I am fascinated by this question and Seeley promises that he's gonna address it. So just to summarize quickly, Um, For those of you who need a little refresher, 
Varroa destructor is a very nasty mite that parasitizes honeybees. It feeds on their fat bodies and it introduces disease and viruses. If you go back to episode four of my podcast, I have a detailed discussion of this pest, including its transmission, uh, how it originally affected colonies in the US, and then also management techniques for how we can deal with it today. But the quick rundown is that this pest is originally from East Asia, where it is native, and it eventually host shifted from Apis serrana, which is the Asian honeybee, to Apis mellifera, our European honeybee. And the transmission was from Russia to Europe to Paraguay to Brazil. And it came to North America through two different routes. One was through Florida in the mid-1980s, and they're not entirely sure how it got to Florida, but the two strongest possibilities are that it was either smuggled, um, that some Brazilian queens, I should say, that were infested with Varroa were smuggled into Florida, or swarms of infested Africanized bees got into Florida through cargo ships. And then again, we had Varroa enter through Texas in the early 1990s when Africanized swarms crossed the US-Mexico border. Now, Thomas Seeley first encountered Varroa mites in his own colonies in June of 1994. And by April 1995, only two of his original 19 colonies were left alive. That's a whopping 89% mortality rate. And this led Seeley wondering if the wild honeybee colonies were being similarly affected. So he went looking for information and one of the first things he found was a study by Dr. Gerald Loper, which was published in American Bee Journal in 1997. Now, Dr. Loper is a staff scientist at the USDA Honeybee Research Laboratory in Tucson, Arizona. And he had been working on a long-term study on a population of wild honeybees in the mountains of the Sonoran Desert. Starting in 1987, Loper located 247 nesting sites of honeybees. And genetic analysis indicated that all European subspecies... um, I'm sorry, genetic analysis indicated that these bees were descendants of European subspecies with 68% having a haplotype of the dark European honeybee. So the very first honeybee that America ever imported. And one of the focuses on the study was assessing winter survival rates of each colony in March and then checking back on the colonies in June for swarming. And what Dr. Loper did is he collected samples of the worker bees and he started inspecting them for tracheal mites before the introduction of Varroa. And sadly, this long-term study, which was published, demonstrated that these populations or this population was absolutely decimated by tracheal and varroa mites. So in 1992 and 1993, which was before varroa, there were 120 to 160 colonies living at the 247 nest sites. From 1994 to 1996, nearly every one of these colonies became infested with varroa. And by March of 1996, only 12 colonies were still alive. Now, in 1995, Africanized bees arrived and they bred with the study bees. And it was at this time that the colonies began to recover somewhat. But generally speaking, the takeaway from this study was that wild colonies were being decimated by varroa mites. And so Seeley began to suspect that the colonies in the Arno forest were also in peril. But being a scientist, Seeley couldn't just guess. He needed to know for sure. So in 2002, using the same methods as he had in his first 1978 survey, Seeley conducted a second census in the Arno Forest. He went looking for colonies for a period of 117 hours over 27 days, and he searched the western half of the forest. And what he found was eight 
colonies, which is almost identical to what he found in 1978 when he found nine colonies. So this was actually a very positive result for him. But that led to further questions. If these colonies had not been decimated by Varroa, did it mean that they hadn't been exposed to Varroa? Because all his previous experience to this point is that once Varroa is introduced to a colony, colonies die. So to answer this, Seeley used bait hives, which he set high up in trees, to capture swarms from these wild colonies. He set up eight-frame, single, deep Langstroth hive bodies with a small entrance because he needed a structured environment in which to monitor and test for Varroa. So he needed to get these wild colonies into a managed hive. Each hive was equipped with a screened bottom board through which the mites would fall and be unable to climb back up. And underneath that was a sticky board that allowed him to conduct mite counts. So with these bait hives, he ended up with three hives that he checked monthly to perform mite drop counts. And he discovered the following. All three hives were infested with Varroa. And the population of mites was stable through late summer and fall, dropped over winter, and then increased slowly and gradually over the next summer. All hives were doing well with strong populations. They had healthy brood, good laying patterns from the queens, good honey production, and no signs of deformed wing virus or other known mite-transmitted diseases, which is surprising. So, If you are a beekeeper, then you're familiar with the fact that as we go through late summer and fall, we're going to see a dramatic increase in mites. And this is when a lot of us are scrambling to get our honey harvest out of the way so we can take the honey supers off and treat before we start going into winter. Because we know that if we don't treat before winter and there's a lot of varroa in that colony, that colony is unlikely to survive. But here, what Seeley found in 2002 was that the population of mites was stable through late summer and fall and had a slow increase over the summer. There was no like blooming of mites that we often see in our managed colonies. And to quote Seeley, by the end of the summer of 2004, It was clear clear that the Arnaud forest was well populated of wild honeybees, that these colonies were infested with varroa mites, and that somehow these colonies were not dying from their mite infestations. So this leads to another question, and I'm going to quote him directly. How does the general biology of these wild colonies, nest structure, seasonal rhythms of growth and reproduction, food collection, defense mechanisms, life history, and still more, differ from what we see in colonies managed by beekeepers? Seeley goes on to say that chapters 5 to 10 are going to directly answer this question, and that chapters 3 to 4, which is what I will be reviewing next, offers a look back at the history of the relationship between honeybees and humans because to understand the key differences between wild colonies and our relationship with our apiaries we really need to look at how we have been keeping bees over the past hundreds of years and that's it for this episode um i know that was very long and um relatively technical but I hope that I broke it down in a way that has made it accessible if not please send me an email you can reach me at homesaidhensandhoney at gmail.com I'm on all the social medias I'm on Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook just look for Homestead Hens or Homestead Hens and Honey Um, and you can find me send me a message and we'll figure it out (laughs) Um, I hope everyone's doing well. I hope you guys are staying safe. Um, I know that we're in unsteady times. Um, I know some states are opening back up. Ohio is supposed to be doing a slow open. And um, it's not really the best idea. (laughs) I will go on record as saying that doing a slow open is a bad idea. I am very sympathetic to people who need their livelihoods. But 
I suspect we're going to see a second wave of infection. So if you can keep those face masks on, keep your social distance, keep being uh, responsible as best you can. Uh, We'll get through this as a community. And um, I know we're all just doing our best and trying to take care of our families. So hang in there, my friends. Um, We've got to do the best we can right now. And um, also just thank you so much to everyone who sent me messages um, when my sweet little chappy had to have his stitches and just for sticking with me engaging with me on social media I really really enjoy getting to know the people who listen to my podcast and then follow me on Instagram and Facebook Um, it's really good to connect with you all and I hope you'll continue sticking with me as I work my way through this book I think it's very interesting and I think it has a lot to teach us about what we're doing with our colonies and maybe what we could be doing a little differently which I'm sure all of us as beekeepers we're always trying to do that the best that we can so I am going to sign off now and um, as always hug your hands and then wash your hands that's very important right now until next time my friends take care